a Bible with you this morning, would you open up to John chapter 17 here at our church? We've been doing a fantastic verse-by-verse study through this incredible gospel, the gospel of John. We've been studying the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to finish uh, John 17, the prayer that we've been in now for about five weeks. And so I'm excited about wrapping up this little study with you together this morning. We're in John chapter 17. Again, if you're on our website, you can download the notes. You might even see them there on your screen, the PowerPoint. And uh, we'll be working through this morning. The title for the sermon is that they may all be one that they all may be one. John 17, verses 20 through 26. Here's what we read here at the end of John 17. John 17, 20, Jesus speaking says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world." O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that, have, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I may be in them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible prayer, the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ here in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer where Jesus is interceding for himself and for the disciples and for us. And I pray that our hearts will be encouraged this morning as we take this last look at this prayer of John 17. God, open our hearts, open our eyes, teach us what you want us to learn so that we can live it out in our lives day by day together with Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, Proverbs chapter 6 says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider his ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. These words were uttered by Solomon the Great and Proverbs chapter 6. And Solomon is pointing out to us that we need to go to the ant to learn wisdom. In fact, he also says in Proverbs 30, there's four things on earth that are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people, not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Well, you're saying, Adam, what are you doing reading these passages about ants? I thought we were in John 17. Well, I love how God uses the seemingly foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And in this case, he uses the ant to teach the human being a lesson. He takes a little bitty ant and he says, hey, human beings, you need to go to this ant and I've got a lesson that I want you to learn. I think it's interesting that the ant is only mentioned in one book of the Bible, the book of Proverbs. It only shows up twice, Proverbs chapter 6 and Proverbs chapter 30. And yet Solomon invites us to study the ant for the purpose of learning wisdom. How exactly do ants with little strength manage to store up enough food to make it through the long winter months? The answer is 
They start to work early. They look to the future. They pool their strength, and they work together for the common good. God has a lesson for us today that we can learn from these little teachers who demonstrate faithfulness, who model hard work, and who come together in unity. Here are some interesting facts about ants. There are over 10,000 known species of ants. Ants can lift 20 times more than their own body weight. The abdomen of an ant contains two stomachs. You'll have to check this out. I know you're encouraged to get these details about the ant, but it actually has two stomachs. One stomach holds food for itself, and the second stomach holds food to be shared with another ant. Each colony of ants has its own smell. This way, intruders can be recognized immediately. If a worker ant has found a good source of food, it leaves a trail of scent so that the other ants of the colony can find the food. Ants understand their gifts, and they work within their specific abilities. They build together, and they have a single focus. And ants help and share with one another. They are team players. And when they are in total unity, they can even remove a millipede from its nest. What an ant could never accomplish on its own, it is able to accomplish when working together with its fellow ant mates. Well, what is the connection between, again, the mighty man and the tiny ant? Man is the crown of all of God's creation with incredible ability. But he is admonished here by Solomon to go and learn what he can from the ant. For being so small, ants indeed do have great wisdom. Ants have an unbelievable spirit of unselfish unity. Ants know how to employ teamwork. Ants have a loyal love for one another. And as Christians, we can learn from God's word, which points us to ants here in Proverbs, the one lesson that I want to emphasize to you this morning, and that is, is that we would all be one, that we would work together as a church in unity. And so this morning here at the end of the high priestly prayer of Jesus, we've already seen how Jesus prays for himself. We've already seen how Jesus prays for his disciples. And this morning, we're going to see how he prays for you. And one of the big components of his prayer is that we would all be one. That as the church, we will be working together in unity. So this morning, I want to give you four lessons on Christian unity. We have learned what we can from the ant. So now let's look to the agent of creation, Jesus Christ himself, as he instructs us in Christian unity. Again, that's four lessons that teach us of the importance of being one. Your first heading, if you are taking notes this morning, simply says this. Number one, Christian unity is patterned after divine unity. And if you're taking notes this morning, you want to fill in that first blank there. It just says, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Look at verse 20 with me, if you will. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I do not ask for these only. Remember, he's been praying for the disciples, those that have been right there with him. And then in verse 20, he says, I am not asking for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. Up to this point, 
Jesus had prayed for himself and his disciples, but at this point we see a clear transition that he is now praying for you. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus is not only praying for his living disciples, but he's praying for all believers of all time that would ever come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then this prayer is not for you. He's not praying for the world in this passage. He's praying for his own. And I'm just telling you, there's something special about that. The fact that Jesus is praying for you. It's an incredible thought. And you know, when he prays for you, I believe that it's accurate for us to even say that he prays for you by name. Maybe you're familiar with Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, that says that your name, if you're in Christ this morning, your name has been written down in the book of life. And in Psalm 91, verse 14, it says that God knows you by name. Listen to me this morning. You are not a general prayer request. When Jesus prays for you, he prays for you, I believe, by name. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows what your fears are. He knows what your weaknesses are. He knows how you're struggling, and he's praying for you this very moment, this very morning. He's praying and interceding for you. Now, Christ intercession began at this very moment 2,000 years ago, and it continues to this very day. Another passage that talks about Jesus interceding for us is Hebrews. Listen to it. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This means that he saves you completely. This means that when you draw near to God through Christ, then you are eternally his. And this verse says that Jesus lives to make intercession for you. And let me tell you something this morning. Jesus was praying for you before you were born. Jesus was praying for you on the day of your birth. Jesus was praying for you when you were just a little critter, a toddler. Jesus was praying for you when you were a teenager. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that he prayed for me during my teenage years and my years in college. And if you're a young man or a young woman, Jesus is praying for you at this moment. And when you hit middle age, he's still praying for you. And when you get old, he's still praying for you. Jesus never stops praying for you. He never gets tired of praying for you. He never takes you off his prayer list. He never gets weary of interceding for you every moment of every day. And Jesus is fully in charge of the prayer ministry at our church. I mean, as elders, we had a meeting this week, and we prayed for you as a church. But Jesus outdoes us all. He prays for every one of us every single day, and it is a model for us to follow, and it is a clear priority in the life of Jesus, and he prays all through all eternity. And don't forget that Jesus' prayers are always answered. Jesus always prays in accordance with God's will. Jesus always prays what is best for you, that you would be protected from the evil one, that your faith would be strengthened, that he prays for you that his joy would be in you and that your joy would be made full. Jesus prays that you would be sanctified through his word, satisfied in your relationship with him, and solidified in his constant love for you. 
Jesus also makes it clear at the end of this verse, I'm looking again at verse 20, where it says uh, that he says that I do not ask for these only, but also those who believe in me through their word. I want you to pay special attention to that word there. He says, I'm not just praying for my disciples, but I'm praying for those, that's you and me, who are basically listening to their word. We're listening to the word of the disciples or of the apostles. It was the apostles and their close associates that recorded for us the New Testament. And so we have the New Testament basically because the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to give us the word of God. And so after Jesus' ascension into heaven, every person who heard the word of God being preached heard it through the sermons and through the writings of the apostles. They heard the word through Peter's sermon in Acts 2. They heard the word through Paul's sermon in Acts 17. They heard the word through John's messages to the seven churches of Revelation. Through all the centuries, all those who preached the true gospel have preached the apostles' word as it was given by the Holy Spirit. In fact, John uh, excuse me, Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. And that Word of God that we have today was given to the apostles, which wrote it down, inspired by God, so that we can have a Bible today, that the Word of Christ was given to the apostles. And as they digested it, they were transformed by it. And when they preached, they preached Christ so much so that Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, of course, being the cornerstone. Well, isn't it nice this morning to know that Jesus is praying for you? Isn't it nice to be comforted this morning in the middle of COVID-19, in the middle of this quarantine, in the middle of whatever difficulty you're facing in your life this morning, you can take it to the bank. Jesus is praying for you. He loves you. He knows where your struggle is, and he's praying for you at this very moment. Now, you might ask, well, exactly what is Jesus praying for me? Does he know my needs? What is he praying for me? Well, one thing he prays for each and every one of us, and your next blank there says that Jesus is praying for unity. Look at verse 21 with me, if you will. He's praying for unity, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So we're seeing an incredible request for unity. When Jesus is praying that we would all be one, he is not praying for world peace. When Jesus is praying that we would all be one, he's not praying for all denominations to come together to form one great big denomination. When Jesus is praying that we would all be one, he's not saying that we should lose all doctrinal distinctions and just water everything down to the least common denominator. He's not praying against the local integrity of a church that meets in a certain space in a certain time. All true Christians are united, not in church membership, but in their view of the gospel. So when Jesus says, I'm praying that they would all be one, that prayer is a prayer that we would all be faithful in our understanding of the gospel. True Christians are spiritually united in the belief that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if there's a Christian that doesn't believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then by definition, that person is no longer a Christian. 
even if they're counted in some survey or in some statistic as being a Christian, it's not, uh, you're not a Christian if you don't believe in the gospel. So when Jesus is praying they would all be one, he's praying that true Christians would always be united in their commitment to the gospel and to the absolute authority of Scripture. The fulfillment of Christ's prayer began on uh, in, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit came in power, Peter preached a passionate message and clearly articulated the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the crowd was cut to the heart, and they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And then we read in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, we see the church starting with unity at that very moment, as the new covenant is being inaugurated, as the new church is moving into the new covenant. We see here all of a sudden incredible unity like we've never seen before. In fact, a couple of verses later, Acts 2 verse 41 says that, So those who received this word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And this is what really makes you a Christian. It's by believing in the gospel. It's by believing in Jesus Christ. It's by repenting of your sins and putting all of your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him to save you and to make you new. And at that time, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And at the moment of salvation, you are made one with Christ and with every other Christian that's living at that moment. You you may be from a different ethnicity. We may be from different cultures. We may have a different color to our skin and speak in different languages. We may have varying degrees of education or economic prosperity. We may have different interests and different hobbies and different foods that we eat, but in Christ, we are all one. We have more in common with another Christian than you do with somebody who's just like you, but they don't know Christ. We're all made one in Christ. And the very end of Acts 2 tells us that the new believers were living in unity. You want to know what unity looked like, at least in the New Testament? Acts 2.46 says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those being saved. What a beautiful picture of Christian unity there in the church of Jerusalem. And true Christian unity is bigger than one local church, and it is bigger than one evangelical denomination, and it is bigger than any Christian concert, any Christian camp, or any Christian conference. True Christian unity is bigger than that because true Christian unity finds its origin in the Trinity. Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Christianity finds its true unity in the Trinity. Jesus is saying, as God the Father and as God the Son, they have two, they are, are two divine beings with one and the same essence. And just as the Father and the Son are two divine 
uh, persons, yet there's one being, the being of God, the Godhead in the Trinity, we understand that Christians share the same oneness. You can no more divide the unity between two Christians than you can divide the Trinity. That's how closely knit and tied together that we really are. And this is what Jesus is praying. I I want the church, I want all the true church, the true believers to be one in me, just as I am one in you and the Father is one in me. And if we have the same Father, that does make us brothers and sisters, right? Uh, we, we, We are brothers and sisters all from the same Spirit. This is how Paul says that in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So question, if we have the same spirit, the same hope, the same calling, the same Lord, faith, and baptism, then why is it that we still fight against each other? I mean, if we're really one, how come sometimes when you look at the church, or evangelicalism at its broadest aspect, sometimes we're fighting all the time. Why do we still bicker and complain and argue against one another? I mean, our unity really should be an unshakable bond. Our unity should be so obvious that when the world sees us standing together, then they may believe that God sent Jesus into the world. You know, it was the German philosopher Schopenhauer who compared the human race to a bunch of porcupines huddled together on a cold winter's night. He said, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt one another with sharp quills. And in the lonely night of earth's winter, eventually we began to drift apart and wander out on our own and freeze to death in our loneliness. Now, I wish that wasn't true, but I think all of us as Christians have experienced getting stuck by someone else. You get poked by someone else in a painful way. It could be your husband. It could be your wife. It could be your mom or your dad or a brother or a sister. It could be somebody in this church. It could be another Christian. And the fact is, we understand that sometimes it can be very difficult. I mean, how are you doing right now during this time of quarantine? You're all cooped up together in your house, like I am with my wife and my kids. Are you functioning more like a bunch of porcupines huddled together with sharp quills? Or are you flocking together like birds that, that uh, what's the saying, like birds of a feather flock together? You know, which one describes your home during this quarantine? Porcupines or birds that are coming together? May God help us to be one with him and to be one with each other. It's J.C. Ryle who said, quote, how often Christians have wasted their strength contending against their brethren instead of contending against sin and against the devil. You know what? I love that quote because it's like we spend more time fighting each other sometimes than we spend fighting the true enemy. You want to fight? Fight sin that's in your heart. You want to fight? Then fight the devil by putting on the armor of God. If you want to fight, fight the spiritual battle that God calls us to, but don't be fighting each other. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for unity. And then in verse 22, it tells us, and your next blank says, Jesus is giving you glory. 
He's given you glory. Look at verse 22, where Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, this glory that Jesus extends to us, let me just tell you something, it's better than the stimulus package. All right, this glory that Jesus extends to you is better than getting a tax return. It's better than getting a big bonus or a raise at work. This glory that the Father has given to the Son, you know, that glory that that Jesus had with the Father before the world began, that glory that is so beautiful and so bright, that glory that has a sense of weightiness to us, to it, a sense of majesty to the glory of God, he now gives to us at least to some degree. According to John 1.14, we know that Jesus, uh, we see his glory in the incarnation where the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father full of grace and truth, that same glory Jesus now gives to you. He gives you grace. He gives you truth. He gives you himself. Jesus, who is full of glory, gives you his glory, which means that he has given you aspects of the divine life that he possesses. And our job is to live that glory out in a way that reflects the glory of God. We're talking here about Matthew 5.16, where Jesus says, let your light shine before men. So that when they see your good works, they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Living your life in this way, unity with each other and with your good works which glorify God, this is all a reflection of the oneness that we see in the Godhead. And so we are looking again this morning at four lessons which teach us of the importance of being one. The first lesson is that Christian unity is patterned after divine unity. Are you ready for lesson number two? The second lesson we need to learn this morning is that Christian unity is a witness to the world. And if you'll look in the middle of verse 21, that next blank says, you are the only Jesus some people will ever see. Now, I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but just go with me if you will. You are the only Jesus that some people will ever see. The middle of verse 21 says this, that that the Father is in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So why is it so important that Christians be unified? Well, according to the middle of verse 22, it's so that the world may know who Jesus is. Listen to me. Unity is a precursor to missions. Unity is a precursor to evangelism. Unity is a precursor to church planting. You can't go out on the front lines by yourself because we're called to be together as fellow believers, and you can't go out there if you're fighting with them because your mission is already shot. If you're not living together and practicing unity in the way that God has called you to, you can't say that you love God, but you don't love your brother in Christ. And we read about that in 1 John, 1 John 2, 9, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, remember that word hate in this context can also mean to disregard. I know that no self-respecting Christian in this church, would ever say that they hate somebody. You just wouldn't say that, right? You wouldn't say, I hate my wife, or I hate my husband, or I hate my kids, or I hate that person in my small group. You know better than saying that. 
But if you'll remember, the word hate here in a context like this doesn't just mean to hate, like hate, hate somebody. It means to disregard somebody. It means to diss somebody. It means that you dislike that person so much that when even the social distancing rules are up, you're still going to practice social distancing with some people. I know you are. So you got to be careful that in your heart of hearts, you don't fool yourself. If you're not having fellowship with another believer, then the principle of 1 John 2.9 applies to you. He says it again in 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, remember, disregards his brother, disassociates himself from his brother, separates from his brother. If anyone says, I love God and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So he's saying, hey, how can you say if this person's a Christian and you're a Christian, how can you say that I love God if you're not willing to love that brother or that sister? If you want to be an effective witness to the world, then you have to practice what you preach. And you have to understand that unity is a precursor to avoid hypocrisy. Remember I said that unity is a precursor to evangelism and missions, and it's also the number one way that I think a lot of times people say that person's a hypocrite is because they see that they don't get along with other people. I mean, they may see some other sin in your life, but once they see that you're not getting along with other people, then that person is like, you know what, how can I believe what that person's saying if they're not living it out? God's calling us, dear saints, he's calling us to love one another. This prayer is being prayed by Jesus Christ. The first thing that he prays for you, in addition to your protection and your purity that he prayed for the disciples just a little bit earlier, is he's now praying for you, the church, and he says, Father, I'm praying that they would all be one. Somebody said, snowflakes are frail, but enough of them together they can stop traffic. If you have enough of them together, they can stop traffic. Well, what does that mean? If snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them get together, they can stop traffic. What does that mean? Well, by yourself, you are actually very frail and you don't have much power. But when you unite with other Christians, like one snowflake could melt, but if you have a blizzard and tons of snow, then it could stop people from traveling where they need to go. And it's the same way. If you want to have an impact on this fast-moving world, maybe just as one Christian, you're not going to be able to cut it. But if you add two, Ecclesiastes says three can't be broken. If you add hundreds and thousands of Christians together who stand in solidarity of the, on the gospel, then it's hard to, to move them out of the way because we see that there's oftentimes strength in numbers. To say it another way, or to illustrate it another way, I've been told that the huge redwood trees that we enjoy seeing, particularly here in Northern California, uh, just north of where we live in SoCal, are considered to be some of the largest living things on earth. They're they're some of the, the tallest trees in the world. Some redwoods are over 300 feet high and over 2,500 years old. And you might think that trees that are so large and so old would have a tremendous root system. You might think that just as tall as they are might be how deep their roots go. Well, actually, the opposite is true. They have a fairly shallow root system compared to how tall these trees are. So the question is, well, how can they stand for so long, and how can they stand so tall? Well, the answer is, is that they are locked on to each other. So when the storms come, 
and the winds blow, the redwoods stand. And because they don't stand alone, for all the trees support and protect one another, they're able to weather any storm. I mean, you don't regularly see one redwood by itself out in the middle of nowhere by itself. You see it in a forest because they support one another. And they, in a sense, lock arms so that they can stand against anything. And the same is true for the church. How will we stay strong if, and, and to weather through storms if we're all alone? Uh, we 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 got to stay together. Are, are we to look to Christ? Of course. Should we be rooted and grounded in the Word of God? Absolutely. But we also need to do it by working together. If we do not stand together, we will surely fall apart. Some people may never pick up a Bible, but they're watching your life, and they're watching your church, and they want to know what's going on where you worship. And they want to know if it makes a, a difference in the unity of your marriage and your family. And it is such a powerful witness to the world that some people might even come to Christ because they see that unity that the Christian possesses. And so in addition to displaying the unity as a witness of Christ, the first part of verse 23, we also see your next blank says is that you need to know your true identity. So you need to know that you're the only Jesus. People are looking at you. And by your unity or disunity, they might be making decisions about what they're going to do with the God that you serve. And in addition to that, you just need to know what your true identity is. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, I in them and you in me. And they have become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. When Jesus says, I in them and you in me, he is speaking about our union with Christ. We are no longer defined as reprobates. We are no longer identified as sons of disobedience. We should no longer think of ourselves primarily as sinners, but we should think of ourselves as saints. We might still struggle, but our identity, we have a new nature. And so we need to understand that if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This is Romans 6, 4, and 5. We're buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, that you too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here's what we're saying, that if you're in Christ, Jesus is now living in you, and the Father is in Christ and Christ is in the Father. And that now defines your identity because the Father and the Son are now in you. Jesus and the Father are making their home in you. That's so encouraging. In the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this isolation, in the midst of this financially difficult time, in the midst of not knowing the future, in the midst of, of your ongoing struggle with sin, you need to know this morning that God loves you and that he cares for you, and he loves you like he loved his son. We read a few months ago in John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And we studied that beautiful truth that just as much as the Father loves the Son from eternity past with a perfect love, with that intra-Trinitarian love, that in a similar way, that's how Jesus loves you. And so what is your true identity, your true identity is you are loved. If you're in Christ, he's praying for you, and he's reminding you this morning that just as the Father loved Jesus, so does he love you. You might be laughed at by the world. 
You might be feeling lost, being away from your family. You might be living off just a little, but you are loved. God lavishes his love on you through Christ. And in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And in Christ, you have an inheritance which is imperishable, which is undefiled, and which will never fade away. And that love that the Father has for you is a witness to the world. When the world sees the way the Father loves his own, and when the world sees the way you love the Father, the way you love God, no matter what, even when you're going through a difficult time, even in the midst of the dark trial, you're not walking away from God. You're loving him more because he loves you and he shows himself to you through his son. And when people see that kind of faith, they might just want to be grafted in. They might want to come to a root that supports the tree and the tree is you and you've been grafted into Christ because he loves you. We also see In the middle of verse 23, not only do we have a new identity that you are loved, but that next blank says your actions sometimes speak louder than words. The middle of verse 23 says again that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. We're talking here about how Jesus has already prayed that they may be one. He's prayed it a couple times in verse 21 and in verse 22. And now in verse 23, it's like he ups his game a little bit and he prays that they may become perfectly one. The word perfectly is the word telos, which means to complete or to, uh, to accomplish, to make perfect. It's the word used in 1 Corinthians 13, 10. But when the perfect comes, the impartial will pass away. And so he's praying that we would be perfectly one. You can only be made perfect by Christ. And you can only be sanctified by his word, which is truth. And as we as a church are trying to grow to be perfectly one, that only happens when you're walking in the Spirit. And I believe that to become perfectly one, that this prayer request is not only about positionally in the gospel that we're perfectly one, but also practically in how we live out our life that we can demonstrate that we are perfectly one. So in other words, not only is Jesus praying that we have the same faith, he's praying that we have the same function. And I think the way that that is fulfilled is by us as the church practicing the one another's. The one another's of Scripture are all of those places in the Scripture where the Bible says things like you need to love one another or you need to bear one another's burdens or you need to forgive one another. In fact, there are 59 one another's in Scripture. And we need to be applying all of those one another's in a way that when people see us loving one another the way that God calls us to, that there's such a unity there that it has a missional impact on our society. In the church, there should be that bond of unity. We are a spiritual family, a family with many parts, but with one common purpose. And like a family, we are the same, and yet there is room for variety. And the devil tries to disrupt that unity. Two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline might be united, but that doesn't mean they have unity. Right? It's more than just saying we're together. We have to actually act like we're together. 
I've never seen that picture, by the way, two chickens tied together, thrown over a clothesline. But it's like, just because they're together doesn't mean they're really together. And so just because we say we're together doesn't mean that we're being nice and loving each other like God calls us to. And so we need to heed passages like Romans 12, 9 through 21, that describes how let your love be genuine and that we need to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Because unity is not just a philosophy, it's a practice. Unity is not a mere union of people together on a church roll, but God knitting our hearts together through love. Unity is not a product of human effort, but of divine empowerment. And when God unites us together in Christ, we are being the witness that he calls us to be. Well, let's move on. We've seen our first two lessons that we need to learn this morning. Our third lesson on Christian unity is this. Christian unity is made complete in heaven. Even though he's praying right now that we would perfectly be one, I'm just going to tell you, you're not going to fully get there until we get to heaven. And here's what we see here in verse 24. Your next blank says, Jesus desires that you be in heaven with him. You got to love verse 24 that says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. The first part of verse 24, Jesus desires that you be in heaven with him. Jesus is about to leave earth. Remember, this is the night that he's going to be arrested in the garden. He's going to be crucified in just a few hours from this very prayer. And then he will be restored with the glory that he had before the world existed. And he's praying that you could go with him. He's praying for you, and he's praying that you would be able to be with him in heaven. Now, I remember as a kid that we, we didn't exactly go on a lot of week-long vacations. Uh, we did camping trips. We visited family. Uh, we would stay in a hotel once in a while. But I remember one time when I was a kid, I had a friend invite me to go on a week-long vacation with him and his family to Panama City Beach in Florida. And I just thought that was a pretty cool thing that my friend would invite me to come on vacation with him and to be with him and his family all week. Well, you know what? Jesus is inviting you to come with him on a permanent vacation. And he's talking about heaven, a place where there'll be no more pain and no more sorrow. And he's praying and inviting us on this day that we would spend all eternity with him. It matters to him that you be with him in heaven where he is. This is something Jesus said earlier in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. And the part of the honor the Father gives to you is salvation, which leads to progressive sanctification like we talked about last week, and then eventually your glorification where you're in heaven with God forever. This is how Jesus prays or, or shares his heart at the, um, in the upper room discourse that we looked at, John 14, just earlier that same night. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What an incredible thought. Jesus desires for you to be in heaven with him. He doesn't need you, but he wants you there. He has made all the preparations. He has made all the provisions. His shed blood on the cross accomplishes your redemption. 
He has already sent out the invitation. He has extended to you the wedding garment of Christ's righteousness. He has invited you in and he has stamped your name on the guest list in the Lamb's book of life. He has prepared a banqueting table for you. You have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What an incredible thing. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you will always be with him. And no one will ever snatch you out of his hand. And you will never be evicted out of heaven. And you will live there eternally. And you will worship the risen Christ all of your days forever and ever. He's praying and desiring that you would be there with him. You know, Jonathan Edwards is often criticized by unbelievers as a crazy, puritanical, hellfire, and brimstone preacher. But scholars have found that the two words that occur most frequently in Edwards' preaching and in his writings are the words sweetness and excellence. You see, the reason that Edwards preached so hard against hell and sinners in the hands of an angry God is that he wanted you to understand that Jesus loves you so much and that there's such a sweetness and there's such an excellence in the presence of Christ. Edwards was caught up with his religious affections, which he wrote about as well, just saying we should love Christ so much that there's this sweetness and this excellence that will be with Christ in his presence in heaven forever. Well, not only does Jesus desire that you come with him to heaven, but the second part of verse 24, Jesus desires, your next blank, that you would see his glory. That second part, verse 24, he's praying that you would be with him for, uh, where he is. And then he says, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus can't wait for you to get to heaven. Doesn't mean that he's going to take you today. But when he does, it's a whole different perspective of Jesus is praying for that, and you'll be in a better place. And so Jesus can't wait for you to get to heaven, and it's not so that you can see the pearly gates, and it's not so that you can walk the streets of gold, and it's not so that you can go up into that big mansion that you might envision that he's been preparing for us. Instead, Jesus wants you, get this, Jesus wants you to come to heaven to see his glory. That's what he wants. He's praying that you would come to heaven to see his glory. Did you know that the most exciting thing in heaven is Jesus? It's not about fishing in that great big pond. I grew up in the South. People would talk about, it's a great big pond up in heaven where you could go fishing. It's not about angels bouncing around on a cloud playing a harp. Heaven is not a place that's going to be boring. Heaven is not a place that's going to make you wish you were back at Magic Mountain or at Disneyland, right? Heaven is a place where you will see the glory of the risen Christ. Now, some people out there might be thinking, well, I've seen the glory of God, and I'm not all that impressed. Then I would say to you this morning, then you haven't really seen it. You can't see the glory of God and be unimpressed the glory of God is the most impressive thing that you could ever see. You, you may be thinking, well, isn't that kind of prideful for Jesus to say that he wants to invite us to heaven, to be with him, just so that we can sit around and look at his glory? Well, look, Jesus is not some amateur worship band 
that has written a lot of original songs that nobody wants to sing, and somehow he's going to make you sit around and sing those songs to him in heaven. That's not what heaven's about. Heaven is instantly about you falling on your face before the risen Lamb and glorying in His majesty and His beauty and His purity in a way that will transform you forever. There's nothing in heaven that has bad taste. In fact, you want to hear a description of heaven? We see a little description of what's happening in heaven, I believe, during the tribulation while we're still, or some people are maybe still here on earth. But nevertheless, Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, gives us a little picture of maybe what heaven would be like when John writes this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. Listen, Jesus wants you to come to heaven to see his glory because that is the most wonderful thing that you could ever see. In fact, this is precisely what every true Christian wants to see. They want to see the glory of God. It was the request of Moses centuries ago. God, I want to see your glory. And every true Christian wants to see the glory of God more than I want to see anything else or anybody else here on this earth. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus in all of his glory. It's the most marvelous thing that you could ever see. Nothing would ever bring you, your heart, more gladness or more joy or more pleasure than being with Jesus and being glorified with the glorified one. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. David prayed it this way in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord That will I seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. May you just want that one thing. May you just seek after that one thing today. May you dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty and have all of your questions answered forever and ever. And oh, by the way, Every Christian is going to be there. So if you're struggling with loving and having decent fellowship with other believers in your family or in this church, they're going to be worshiping right next to you in heaven. So we might as well get used to it right now because Christian unity will be finally made complete in heaven. One last truth quickly this morning. I know we've been in this for a little while, but the best thing about preaching uh, to you through live stream this morning is uh, that you can't turn me off. Well, I guess you could turn me off, but we're going to keep going. One final point this morning. Number four, Christian unity is living a life of love. It's living a life of love. Your next blank says the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. So Christian unity is a life of love. But that love starts with knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the world doesn't truly know God. 
people say they believe in God or they believe in a higher power, but if they don't believe in Jesus Christ and if they've never repented, then they don't really know God. But the disciples do, and you do. That's why he says again in verse 25, even though the world does not know, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. So Jesus knows that if you're in Christ this morning, then you know. In fact, that, that's where our faith starts. It starts with a knowledge that we know who God is. That's what 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so another part of, that, of, that, uh, of this idea here, of this fourth point, Christian unity is living a life of love, is not only do we have knowledge, but that, that next blank says the knowledge of the attributes of God. We have a knowledge of the attributes of God. Why, why do I say that? Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. We've discussed already when Jesus is praying that we would know the name of God. That's that we would know God's nature, that we would know his characteristics, that we would know his attributes. And he's praying that he would continue to make uh, God's name known. And I believe that Jesus is referring here to after the resurrection, he reveals more. He reveals more after the resurrection, before the ascension. He does that on the road to Emmaus to the two uh, disciples there in Luke 24. He does that as he reveals himself to Saul, who became Paul in Acts chapter 9. He reveals himself even further to John, who wrote to the seven churches of Revelation. And so Jesus continues to reveal himself time and time again. And for you and me today, he's still revealing himself through his word. He is the living word. The, the word of God is living and active. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have this continual enlightenment to who God is through the Holy Spirit and through the living words of Christ. One last blank here says, this knowledge translates into loving like Christ's love. The very end of verse 26, he says that again, that he's made known his name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The knowledge of God should translate into the love of God. And Jesus prays that the love which the Father has for the Son may be in Christ's followers. Jesus makes his love for the Father known through his death, and the Father makes his love for the Son known through raising him from the dead. And this is love in action. And if the love of the Father is in you, and if Christ is in you, then you should be putting it into practice, that same kind of love. We're talking here about the love of sacrifice, the love of commitment. It's the love of service. It's the love of worship. It's the love of holy affections directed to God. This is similar to what Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge, right? 1 Corinthians 13, you could have all the knowledge in the world, but it could be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal if you're not doing it out of a true love for Christ, the right kind of love. And if you have that kind of love, the kind of love that Jesus is praying for, then Jesus already tells us in John 14, 23, that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, in this last part of Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed that we would all be one. Christian unity has its very foundation in divine unity. 
the Christian unity helps the church be an undeniable witness to the world. And our Christian unity will only be made complete in heaven at our glorification. And Christian unity is living a life of love. Is this prayer that Jesus prayed coming true in your life this morning? These amazing lessons that we're learning from Jesus' prayer, he's praying they're going to come true in you. And you know what? I believe that they are. I believe that everything that Jesus prays is and will come true in your life. How do I know that these things will come true? I know that these things will become true because of the price that Jesus paid, because of the promise that Jesus made, and because of the prayer that Jesus prayed. Remember, none of his prayers go unanswered. And so because of the price that he paid, the promise that he made, and the prayer that he prayed, we know that these things will and can become true in you. We can be united with one another, working together in harmony, and indeed we can be laborers together with Christ. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will bring us the unity that Jesus desires and prays that we would all be one. Let's pray that prayer together even now. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just be uh, reviewing the, the prayer of Christ in John 17, that we would all be one. And Lord, we've looked at so many things this morning about the beauty of the true unity that you call us to, God. We know that that unity that you call us to, it's patterned after divine unity, that the unity that you call us to can only be completed in heaven. And yet here, while we're still on earth, God, that you call us to have a type of love for one another and a type of unity where we could encourage one another and we could truly uh, fight to fellowship with each other. We know that right now during the coronavirus, things have changed how we live and we're not able to practice that same unity like we're accustomed to. And yet I just pray that we would determine in our hearts right here, right now, that we want to have that kind of unity that you call us to, that they will know that we are Christians by our love. And so I pray, God, that if there's somebody right now going through a difficult division, uh, there's some conflict, there's some divisive thing that would be separating a husband and wife, I pray that right now you would give them the common courtesy to sit down and talk together and to seek that unity that you grant them through Christ. I pray if there's a broken relationship with a, with a parent and a child, that you would give them the, the courage to sit down and talk together. I pray, God, if there be any broken fellowship in our body, that you would give those two individuals or those two couples or families the courage to sit down together and just to confess, you know what, we're not one. We're not really together, and we have the same Father, and so we need to be together as one so that we can together reach the world. And so I just pray you would do a special work of grace in our church as we think through how we can apply what we've learned this morning, this incredible prayer, this high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would all be one. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.